0: are listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Carla McLaren. Carla McLaren is an empath and an award-winning author, social science researcher, and pioneering educator whose empathic approach to emotions has taken her through the healing of her own childhood trauma into a healing career and now into the study of sociology, anthropology, neurology, cognitive psychology and education. With Sounds True, she's the author of the book and audio program, The Language of Emotions, What Your Feelings Are Trying to Tell You, as well as a new book and audio series, The Art of Empathy, A Complete Guide to Life's Most Essential Skill. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Carla and I talked about what it truly means to be empathic and the challenges of what she calls being a hyper-empath as well as the challenges of being underdeveloped in our empathy. We also talked about people who are often considered exiles from the world of empathy and misconceptions about such people. Finally, our conversation focused on the six Aspects of empathy that Carla defines in her new book, The Art of Empathy, and how we can develop ourselves in all six of these different areas. Here's part one of my conversation on The Art of Empathy with Carla McLaren. Carla, it's great to be with you here in the Sounds True studio and to talk about your new book, The Art of Empathy. Welcome.
1: I'm so happy to be with you again.
0: Now, you talk about empathy as life's most essential skill, which is, of course, a big statement, life's most essential skill. So tell me why you consider empathy to be life's most essential skill.
1: (laughs) Because that's the subtitle you chose. (laughs) Do you remember that?
0: Well, it's a very strong statement. It's a bold <laughs> subtitle, but uh, I know you well enough to know that you must be behind it, or it wouldn't be in print.
1: When I first heard it, "Life's Most Essential Skill," I went, "Are you trying to give me a heart attack?" <laughs> because I felt that I had to write a book that was that was complete, that was you know fully realized which meant that I needed to look at it in so many different ways. I do agree that it's the most essential skill, that and emotional awareness, because you can be as smart as Einstein, or as physically, you know, brilliant as an Olympic athlete, or as spiritual as, you know, the greatest spiritual leader. But if you can't empathize with people, and if you can't work with your emotions, you're just going to fall on your butt all the time in human relationships. And... I think there's so much about emotions and empathy that's kind of hidden and behind the curtain and underneath the rug that we don't really talk about it very clearly or very openly. And because we don't talk about it openly, it tends to go into the shadow. And then it can come and sort of grab you wherever you are. So when there's trouble at work, it's usually an empathy and emotion problem. You know, a, a people who are doing too much work and have lost their emotional kind of fluidity. Uh, if you have trouble in government, it's usually an empathy, an emotion problem. You know, a lot of it's about money. A lot of it's about that sort of thing. But how money is allocated, how things are seen as important is a part of our capacity to empathize. And as we've seen, you know, in the recent times in our government, empathy is a big problem you know that we we get into our little camps and we see the other person as the other as not us you know democrats are not us or republicans are not us whatever they say we have to we have to you know look at it with a tremendous amount of criticism and and scrutiny and a lack of empathy and and think of them as being um, against us and so i look around at what problems happen with people and and structures and it's Almost always emotional is almost always empathic in 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 nature,
0: okay, so I want to be really clear that everybody's <clears throat> tracking with us when you use the word empathy, what exactly do you mean by that?
1: I have it written in the book it's it's very well <laughs> it's very well organized how I have it written, but empathy is our capacity to to receive and understand the emotional state of others and their perspective and what they would like to have happen next. It's our ability to really put ourselves into the place of the other and understand things from their viewpoint. And we do it all the time. For instance, you can't drive your car without having a really good empathic sense for the other drivers, but we don't call it empathy Because, again, it's in the shadow. It's under the rug. So if you're at a four-way stop with no lights and all the four cars have come at the same time, nobody's speaking to each other, but everyone is looking and making eye contact and they're all figuring out who's going to go, right? I mean, there's tremendous communication going on and it's emotional and it's empathic, clearly because people aren't talking. But that's how we... um, that's how we, we we dance with each other in the world is through this what um anthropologists call the para um paralinguistic signals, the things beyond and underneath and beside language.
0: Okay. So. so so let's say somebody's listening to this and their thought is, you know, I wish I was more empathic. I've gotten this feedback actually from people that they wish I was more <laughs> empathic, for example. <laughs> you know, from a partner. What would be your suggestions to someone who finds that they fall on that side Mm -hmm. of the equation? I wish I understood people better. I Mm -hmm. don't really get... Sometimes I'm in the room and it's clear to me that I have no idea what's going on with this other person.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I did in the book was to break empathy down into six discrete but connected... um, I call them the essential aspects. And when people say I am too empathic or I'm not empathic enough... It really helps to look at it in terms of six aspects so that people can say, oh, I'm good at that one. I'm really good at that one. But here's where I have a problem instead of I am not empathic Mm -hmm. because it's not actually possible to be completely unempathic. You have to be in a coma (laughs) because you're always picking up signals from others. I think for a lot of people, the problems in empathy are problems in emotion uh, identification and emotion regulation. So for a lot of people, empathy is primarily emotional. It starts with what's called emotion contagion, which sounds kind of icky, but that's what it's called in the uh, research. So emotion contagion, um, when you start laughing and someone else comes off and starts laughing because you're laughing so hard, that would be emotion contagion. It can be lovely. Um, Or when someone starts crying and you go, that would be emotion contagion. For some people who would consider themselves unempathic, they may not be able to work with certain emotions in their own bodies. So, for instance, if sadness is in the room and they don't really have a practice for sadness or they were taught when they were young that sadness was weakness, they may shut down simply because that emotion is not very workable for them. It's not very comfortable. So uh, people would say, you know, in that situation, you're not empathic. Right. And it could be, let's look at all the other emotions. Can they support when, you, when you're angry? Yeah. What about when you're happy? What about when you're feeling envious? Right. So, so it's like to, to articulate out exactly what's happening so that people can understand they have control and they have, um, they have choices about how empathic they want to be.
0: Yeah. Well, this is very helpful, uh, I think, because you're you're bringing a lot of precision to a topic that, as you say, has been in the shadows or hasn't been looked at this carefully. So I think it's really helpful. So if you would, could you lay out for me these six aspects of empathy and help me understand what they are? Because that might help me identify or the listener Mm -hmm. identify which area is challenging for them. Mm
1: -hmm. The six aspects and when I, when I put them out for people, they sort of get overwhelmed as if there's going to be a test later. So I just want you to know there's not going to be a test later and that you do all of these six aspects of empathy, usually without even thinking. And the six aspects are, the first one is emotion contagion, which we talked about. And I started with emotion contagion because that's where empathy starts. You have to be aware that there's an emotion in the room or that there's an emotion expected of you, or there's an emotion between you and the other person. There's something needing to be um, felt. And so that is where it starts. uh, Empathy is primarily an emotional skill.
0: And is it fair to say that emotion contagion, this first aspect, is always happening? So we may or may not be aware of it, but it's always
1: happening. And what's interesting is when a lot of people talk to me about, I'm too empathic, uh, how can I stop feeling the emotions of others? And I kind of back up and say, well, let's talk about which emotions. I think this is not an empathy problem. This isn't a specific emotion problem. And usually when we get down to it, I say, well, do you like laughing with people? Yes. Do you like going to sad movies? Yes. You know, do you like scary movies? Yes. So it's not that they're too empathic. It's usually that when there's a certain emotion in the room, it's almost always anger or anxiety. Then the person feels like, that's too much. That's too much for me. And again, it's that situation of not having skills in your own body for that emotion. Mm-hmm. Sharing emotions is delightful. It's a wonderful thing. And we have a whole group of, of professionals that we pay money to, to to emote for us, and those are actors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, if an actor can't transfer an emotion to us, he or she is a bad actor. Well, if a musician can't transfer emotion to us, if a poet can't transfer emotion, they're bad at their jobs. So again, it's in the, it's in the background. We don't call these people emotion professionals or professional empaths. We call them actors and poets and you know, musicians and literary writers, but we don't identify the emotion contagion.
0: Now, when you said there was a profession in our world that is all about communicating emotion, I thought you were going to talk about therapists. Yep. That that was the role that a therapist plays in our life. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about that?
1: Well, I think we go to therapists. Um, certainly, we can call them emotion professionals, but and everybody would sort of know that. Um, but I've, a lot of times we go to therapists when we cannot work with emotions on, in our own selves. Correct. And what's interesting is that... It's a sort of it's a secretive place. You know, many therapists have rules about never saying that you've been there as if having trouble with emotions is something that needs to be kept quiet in the background, behind the curtain, under the rug, right? Instead of saying out loud, "You know what? I've got problems with anger, and I'd like some help with it in this family." You're sent out of the family. You know, or if you're in a classroom as a child and you have problems with anger, you're going to be sent to the principal's office. When when people have trouble with emotion, instead of understanding that we have emotions together as as community, the, the emotionally intense people or the people struggling usually get pulled out and put into a separate place where it's sort of secret and shameful to be there. Now, many therapists are trying to make it clear that it's not shameful to go and need some support with your emotions, but... Yeah, it's interesting that we see emotions as such problematic things, and yet on the other side, we pay people so much money, and we and we have you know, um, uh, award ceremonies every year to say this is the best musician, this is the best writer, this is the best actor, um, because they help us feel emotion in a in a safe you know and bounded way, mm-hmm. but we love emotion contagion. Mm-hmm. We 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 live for it Mm -hmm. Um, if you see a baby or dogs dogs love to play with emotions with you they love you know if you're crying the dog will come to you the dog won't run away if you're angry the dog will probably go oh i'm sorry (laughs) because something could happen but you know uh, animals and babies everybody knows that we love emotions but when we grow up we tend to say oh don't be emotional let's be rational as if they're two entirely separate things so after emotion contagion, the second step is empathic accuracy, and that's also from the research. And what it means is if there's an emotion in the room and you pick it up correctly through contagion, you know what it is. And this is a really important step because for many people, their their emotion training, especially as children, was very poor and um, involved with shame. So, for instance, we tell children, which emotions are correct just by the way we name them for them. So we'll say, there's no reason to be afraid. Don't be a little coward. Or um, you won't talk to me that way, young man. Or there's that smile. That's what I want to see. Right? So we tell children which emotions are acceptable and which emotions aren't. So let's say that you pick up, there's anger in the room, you pick it up, and in your body, in your psyche, you have no practice for anger, except don't have it. And maybe you saw rage in your father or your mother. So there's anger in the room, you immediately go to rage, a place of your child self, you've got no skills. And that would be poor empathic accuracy, because that other person might be having just a small simmering amount of anger that they could deal with. But you know, you're off, you know, you, you, you drop back 30 years and you've lost, you know, your words. So empathic accuracy is really important that you know which emotion it is and that you have an, uh, an emotional vocabulary so that you can make articulations between what's going on in the room.
0: Okay, now this is, I think, a very, very huge step, huge step for a lot of people, meaning I'm in a room and it's clearly that there's a contagion going on. You know, I feel quite strange, very strange. Maybe my stomach's turning over or something. I might even have heebie-jeebies of some kind or something. But there's a, a long way between knowing I feel quite Weird, mm-hmm. you know, a placeholder word that means so many different things. Yeah. To having the kind of accuracy mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Oh, I actually know it's this particular emotion. Mm-hmm. So how how can you help people with this aspect of empathy? Because I think there's a huge training gap.
1: In yeah, this. this is this is massive, and that's what my earlier book, The Language of Emotions, was about. Was how do you learn? what emotions are, how to name them, how to identify them, how to work with them, because we're just not trained. We're trained, happiness is what I want to see. There's that smile. Everything else, you take it to the principal's office. You, know? you take it to the therapist. And so in our, in our relationships with each other, we don't have emotion skills. And so our accuracy tends to be pretty low. And when your accuracy is off, the rest of empathy goes off as well. Because if you, Tammy, are feeling cranky about something that happened, and I immediately go to rage, I've lost the whole thread of our relationship. I've lost the entire point of who you are. And I'm in my own story. And, you know, overwhelmed. is Is it
0: fair to say that we're at a time in our culture, maybe it's only really in the past couple decades, where this is being acknowledged that... And maybe it's not even being widely acknowledged, but starting to be acknowledged that this development of something like a language for emotions is just coming into
1: the picture for people? It really is. You know, there's Daniel Goleman's famous work, but the neuroscientist of emotion, Antonio Damasio, said in his own work in the 90s that he sort of had to keep his work uh, quiet because people are saying, Damasio, emotions, come on. You know, gee. And it turns out that we're finding now that emotions underlie all behavior, that emotions um, are continually motivating us. You know, the word emotions knows what it does, it motivates us. Emotions are underneath everything and they inform all parts of our cognition. But because they've been ignored and pushed, under the rug behind the curtain that that it's only in the last, you know, 20 years that people have even been able to talk about emotions uh in in neuroscience and in psychology which is very strange. You would think psychology would be all about emotions. Yeah. And in many um uh psychology master's programs the language of emotions is their textbook and I said, "What?" And it turns out it's the only book that talks about all the emotions together in terms of how they work and what to do with them. And I thought, well, this says a lot that in psychology which you and I would identify as the emotion professionals, they don't have the language that they need to order understand emotions. so it's 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 well, a huge What's issue. exciting to me
0: though, because we're only on the second aspect here of mm. empathy. We're just starting the process. Yeah. And here we've already identified that for many people, there's a critical gap. Yeah. And certainly for me, I've been exposed to so many different teachers and trainings, but I still feel like I'm, I'm certainly not out of elementary school when it, I'm not sure I'm in kindergarten anymore, but I'll put myself in <laughs> elementary school when it comes to identifying accurately what emotional experience I'm having with a high level of nuance yeah. in any given moment. Yeah. And yet, if this is the ground of developing empathy, it means that we, we actually could go a very, very, very long way in training people mm-hmm. in empathic abilities. And that would be a huge shift in our culture.
1: Yeah, simply having an emotional vocabulary that's more than angry, sad, happy would do amazing things. There was a Russian study that showed that Russians who have many different words for different colors of blue, um, for light blue and dark blue and this blue, can actually see more colors of blue than we can because we call them dark blue and light blue, right? Uh, We don't have that gradation. And that that vocabulary informs perception. Mm -hmm. So if you have more words for your emotions, if you can say... I'm angry, but I'm just in a soft kind of anger. I'm a little bit peeved. I don't know if I'm perturbed, but yeah, I'm peeved or or something like that. To be able to articulate in your own self to that extent, you begin to feel, you begin to be able to perceive more emotions because you have the words for it.
0: Now, help me understand just in a very explicit way, how will increasing my sensitivity and vocabulary to the nuances of my own emotional experience make me more empathic with others.
1: Being aware of your own emotional experience means that your accuracy is going to going to be increased because you'll know what you're feeling. So in the situation where you were feeling cranky and I went to rage and got afraid and lost my, you know, lost my focus, I could say, let's say that I do go there. I could say, okay, I think Tammy is feeling cranky. I know, I know her well enough to know this is cranky and I'm not in danger. But I'm feeling some anxiety because I'm remembering my dad. Do you know what I mean? I could, I could start to articulate what's going on. Okay, so Tammy's not my dad. This is not about that. I need to go have some therapy about my dad. But right now I'm with Tammy who's cranky. And, and then to check in. And then when I say that to myself, the anxiety will, will release. And I'll go, okay, now I'm feeling some calm. A little bit of fear, but it's not bad fear. You know what I mean? So this seems like a lot. It seems like a lot. But what I found is that having an extensive um, interior monologue really helps. And I can still be present with people. But just check in. How am I feeling? What's going on with me? Uh, Why did I just seize up? What's happening? Because I think one of the things with empathy is it is a relationship. Mm -hmm. And you can't have a relationship if you don't know yourself very well. Mm -hmm. You're just going to, you know, do your parents' marriage, (laughs) you know, part seven. Um, To know who you are is really an important part of empathic accuracy. And it's an important part of the next step, which is uh, emotion regulation. So let's say I pick up your crankiness in emotion contagion did you just happen to pick this as a crankiness as just, you know just well, I mean, you could pick anything it's feeling, but it's like, yeah, fine grief. no it's fine i'm can... saying cranky because <laughs> it's so nice for women to be angry that's, that's fine let's just, <laughs> let's just work with crankiness i mean okay. it's
0: a common enough experience that i yeah. have it's fine so sad. let's keep let's keep going with it okay
1: good um, i can say i don't want to say fear uh, sadness women are always sad let's have them be angry for a minute here <laughs> no, so i pick it up correctly with empathic accuracy i know that you're cranky now, if I don't have a practice for crankiness in my own self. I'm accurate, I picked it up correctly. But I don't know what to do because when I get cranky, I start throwing things. Um, you know, I I sort of escalate myself. Then I'm also lost in the empathic thing because now I'm in my my problem with anger. I'm not in your experience, Mm -hmm. I'm in my problem. So emotion regulation is really important. And that's what the skills in the book are about is how to ground yourself, how to refocus, how to um, understand when you're overwhelmed, how to soothe yourself so that you can really be present. Mm -hmm. Emotion regulation is really crucial. And it's yet another place where when you say people are too empathic or not empathic enough, there's usually an emotion regulation issue going on where they just don't have skills in that emotion. And luckily, as we're finding in neuroscience research, you can change how your brain responds to emotion. Um, I included the work of Richard Davidson in, in the the Art of Empathy, because he has such a hopeful view of using mindfulness practices to actually change how you re- respond to emotion, how you respond to sensory input, how you respond to the social world. I was like, bing, this is, this is awesome. Because I found it to be true in my own life. You can change. You're not, you're not stuck. Emotions are so fluid, and empathy is such a fluid skill that it's not as if you're always too empathic, you're never going to be empathic. You can change.
0: Okay, now you said something that I'm not sure people will follow, which is emotion regulation would be potentially problematic for someone who's not very empathic, and that makes sense. But even also for someone who's supremely hyper-empathic, emotional regulation might be a difficult spot for them. Can mm-hmm. you help me understand that?
1: For people who are hyper-empaths, usually they've got intense emotion contagion skills. Intense. And they could have good accuracy as well. But if they don't have emotion regulation skills, then the experience of empathy for them is going to be pretty painful. Mm-hmm. It's going to be sort of like being, you know, in the, in the middle of the ocean, getting hit by waves and undertow at the same time. So you sort of can't make sense of it. This is what I see in my friends on the autism spectrum who are thought of as unempathic. I mean, that's one of the things you say about autistic people is they're unempathic. And yet the time I've spent with autistic people, I was sort of um, uh, horrified to realize that these are hyperempaths who are getting so much emotional and sensory input but can't regulate it in themselves. So they just shut down they just shut down and focus on on things that are manageable on things that are that they can organize that they can systematize that they can figure out and so that was a, a huge piece for me in understanding the 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 necessity of emotion regulation for everybody but especially for hyperempaths so Learning the language of emotions, learning to turn toward the emotions and work with them as a part of your cognition, as a part of your neurology, rather than things that happen to you. Because for people with heavy emotion contagion skills, emotions can feel like a battering wave after battering wave. And that was certainly my experience as a child before I had emotion regulation skills. Uh, Being with people was horrendous. And uh, I was so hyper-hyper and so angry and i lashed out all the time because so, so much was coming at me and i couldn't manage it so if you saw me running around as a kid you would never have said there's a little hyper empath you would have said that kid's a hellion you know mm-hmm. that kid needs to get out of my house because she's going to break something so so looking at empathy as you know it's these lovely people who totally listen to you yeah yeah that's not it not no, for hyper empath.
0: Okay, so there's a, there's a couple things here I want to tease out. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining someone who is a parent at this moment listening, saying, I think my kid might be a hyper-empath. <laughs> Maybe. How would a parent know if their child was a hyper-empath or not?
1: I would say that any child who has a lot of energy, a lot of sort of attention deficit, a lot of hyperactivity, um, you could pretty much say this child is taking in too much. In, in the sensory world, with hearing, with vision, with movement, and with emotion, it almost always goes together that sensory aware people are also emotionally hyper aware. And so, for a child who has that much intensity, what my mom found to do was to help me find quiet places and forts. So I made a lot of forts. I was like the the queen of the forts. I was the fort empress. And to 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 like cover myself with things, put two chairs together and blankets over it so that I could have some sense of having boundaries around my body, which was on fire all the time. So when you see a child acting out to that extent, rather than say, well, that's just a bad child, it's just a brat, say that behavior has a very specific purpose. It looks like they're blowing out a lot of input. And just watch the child... um, Watch the child in terms of input. Uh, What happens when they come home from school? Do they melt down? Usually they can hold it together during school. When they get home where it's safe, they'll just fall apart. Or they can't handle it in school. But we don't look at children in in terms of their their existence as poorly emotionally regulated because they're little, um, wildly sensory and emotion aware um, organisms. And for some kids, they just have to run and fight and, you know, freak out um, in order to just make it through childhood.
0: Thank you. That's helpful. Now, you, you describe yourself as a hyper-empath. Yeah. Is, that, is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah. Hyper-hyper? Yeah. Uber-hyper-super-empath?
1: <laughs> Wacky-quacky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: and I, I'm curious. I know you teach in The Art of Empathy a series of skills to help people work with their empathic nature. But I'm curious, in terms of emotional regulation, what you do now on the spot when you're in an experience and you start feeling overwhelmed by emotional input, do you have a self-regulation protocol that you use with yourself?
1: If I can, I will do what is called in the autistic world stimming. Um, which would be um, hand flapping, um, just any kind of movement to sort of raise my heart rate and blow it off. um, So that if I'm overwhelmed, I'll also do grounding, deep breathing, that sort of thing. So that I, I, I help as a sort of as a partner to my body, my body is going through some really intense things, and I have enough separation to say, whoa, I'm overwhelmed, and then to soothe myself. And that's one of the most important things for anybody, but also for hyperempaths, is to learn 40 to 400 self-soothing behaviors.
0: 40 to 400.
1: 4 million to four, 40. What, what billion. if I just found one or two that <laughs> okay, worked? Two with, are good, yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. So the, the two that you offered, this is like a shaking kind of thing, shaking, yeah, shaking your hands or shaking. Oh, and
1: do you, do you remember um, Peter Levine's work where he talks so much about the importance of shaking off? Yeah. And I think with a lot of kids who are hyper and they're running and they're moving all the time, they're trying to shake off. They're trying to shake off all the input. So, anything where you can move the input. But a lot of times, if I start shaking and moving the way I need to, it goes in emotion contagion. People read it as anxiety and they get anxious. Yeah. Right. And for me, it is reducing anxiety. But for them, that kind of movement would mean. So, I've learned to, to be careful around other people because they don't, they read it in their own way. Yeah. You well,
0: know. feel free to shake as much as you want here in the Sound Street studio. <laughs> yeah, the microphones Caroline. are on, so I'll yeah, do the fine. quiet shake. It's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, the the second technique that you use personally, you said, is grounding. Yeah. So can you tell me just quickly, how do you do that sort of on the spot?
1: Sort of uh, taking in a deep breath and imagine breathing downward and into the ground. What happens for a lot of people when they get emotionally overwhelmed or, or overwhelmed with sensory input is they sort of lift out of their body and dissociate. And what that tells, what that told my body was, you're on your own, babe, I'm leaving. You know, this is too unsafe. And what I was doing was I was creating a kind of a post-traumatic stress disorder around my behavior when there was too much emotion or too much, you know, too much stuff going on in a room. I would dissociate, which is, you know, a lovely survival skill, it's awesome. But if you do it as a matter of course, it is very hard to sort of live your life. And so I had to learn a skill that was integrating rather than dissociating. So for me it is simply breathing and downward. Now I had to learn this sort of step by step because my natural go to skill was to just leave and sort of float above my body and you know I have entire years of my life that I don't remember. That tr- I was tr- just tr- gone. It? Yeah. Uh-huh. You know people say remember when we went to this place when you were 10? Yeah. Like, nope, I got nothing. You know, or people will remember their favorite teacher in school. I have maybe two names and that's it. You know, I was dissociated most of my childhood because it was it was hard to be a kid and to have that many um that much stuff coming at me that I couldn't control. Mm-hmm. And when I would speak my emotional truth in a situation, um I mean, it's hard for adults to hear the emotional truth of a situation if they're hiding it uh, from another adult. It's pretty awful for them to hear it from a child, you know. So I would get called out a lot. And I realized it's just not worth it to speak the truth about what I see. So I didn't have a way to articulate. I didn't have a way to manage. So I just sort of left. You know, I was, I was gone most of the time. And so... With, with this breathing downward, with allowing my body to tell me how it needs to work and how it needs to move, then I can work through it in a way that's respectful of my body as a living organism that's in overwhelm, mm-hmm. rather than me going, you know, you're on your own, pal, um, is to continually refocus and then check in, well, what am I feeling? Anxiety. Well, what is the purpose of anxiety? Anxiety tells me that there's something coming that I need to get prepared for. Okay, so what, what should I do? Right? Instead of, I'm feeling anxious. Ah, it's horrible. I need to go drink, or, you know, or get high. Um, but rather stay with the emotion.
0: Now, one more question about emotional regulation. A lot of people have the sense that meditation or mindfulness practice, as you mentioned in the work of Richie Davidson, is a wonderful way to help them work with their emotions. Mm -hmm. They calm their body down. They're able to witness what's happening. And in the book, The Art of Empathy, you, you recognize this, but you also say that meditation might not be a good strategy for some people, that there may be better strategies. And I'm curious if you can talk to those people who are maybe never really connected with meditation or don't find it particularly emotionally regulating.
1: I grew up in the meditation culture. My mother was a yoga teacher. So there was a lot of stillness meditation going on in my house, which I sucked at. Um, And, of course, that meant I was a failure right? If you can't meditate, you're a failure and there's nothing for you. But as I got into understanding that I needed to integrate, I started looking at what was happening in meditation. I looked at it empathically. What are they doing? What's happening with their bodies? What are they trying to achieve? And I found ways to do it in movement. So um, our dear, dearly beloved, late Gabriel Roth was one of those people who found her peace in movement, and so that is it for me. My meditative practices allow movement and emotion to happen, and um, so I am definitely doing mindfulness, but it's just not stillness because my my body can't tolerate stillness. It's I'm I'm um, I'm a moving sculpture. I'm, this is not going to slow down, <laughs> um, and so i'm 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 achieving the same things that mindfulness does but doing it in a, a quicker way i would say and a way that's portable and you can do in at a second's notice because i notice for some people they will meditate in the morning to sort of set their set their bodies and then maybe again in the evening to clear up whatever happened during the day but during the day itself the meditative practice isn't really as as fluid as it could be, you know, you sort of have to sit in a place, and you have to do this or that thing. You have to be away from people, and um, for mine are very interactive. So that if I'm in a situation and I need to get myself integrated immediately, I can do it, and and focus, and boom, and get myself peaceful. Another thing about what I've noticed, and this isn't true about all mindfulness practices, obviously, but there's a way that emotions are treated in some mindfulness practices that i find problematic because what people are asked to become witnesses to the emotion as if it doesn't have anything to say right so i see that i'm feeling anxiety i'm going to breathe and just let it go and that going up to that place i'm i'm calming my body i see that i feel the anxiety i would say stop there listen to the anxiety and work with it in a meditative way. So bring emotions into the meditative process and listen to them, because they have so much wisdom. Um, I often say, you know, emotions uh, evolved over millions of years to make us socially successful primates. They are frankly smarter than any human who's ever lived. And listening to the emotions, you will find out the most amazing thing, and if you're taught to just witness them and watch them you know watch them go by down the river, you miss so much certainly you're much calmer right that's an awesome thing you've got this lovely self soothing practice, but my concern is that the emotions aren't welcomed in as a as a intrinsic part of spirituality and cognition and every part of our lives. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, let's go to the fourth aspect.
1: The fourth is perspective-taking. And that's also from the research. Perspective-taking is my ability to look at the world from your perspective, not mine. What would you want in this situation? How would it work for you? And one of the ways to do perspective-taking is just to ask the person, (laughs) how would it work for you? But if you don't have these first three skills you know, worked out in your own self, it's gonna be very hard for you to take the perspective of someone else, especially if your empathic accuracy is poor. You won't be able to take the perspective because you'll be in the wrong emotional, you know, room, you'll be in another room down the street, you won't be with the person with what they're doing. If your emotion regulation is poor, you won't have the the, the spaciousness and the the willingness to go and take the perspective of the other, because you'll be in, you know, a four alarm fire of emotional difficulty in your own self. So perspective taking is a really important thing that um, that helps you really look at the world from the position of the other.
0: Okay, I want to ask you a question about this. Sometimes I've found that it's hard for me to take the perspective of another person when there's nothing in my own experience that relates to what they're going through. Mm -hmm. It's just so different than it. If I have something inside that I can connect to, like, yeah, I've been through something like that, I can get it. But when I don't, like something's happened to them, that just nothing in my experience is like that. How can you help me take someone's perspective in that kind of situation? Mm
1: -hmm. I think that's the time when it's important to move into a dialogue with them because they've got a piece of the world that you don't have. And one of the most important things that you can do to increase your perspective taking at any point in your life is read or watch fiction. Fiction, storytelling, um, reading stories to kids, watching movies, this helps your perspective taking, um, it, it helps you increase it. And so if you find that that there's a certain kind of person that you cannot take their perspective. I would say this is the place where practice is, right? This is the place where empathic practice is. So a lot of times, like, it's also the shadow, right? The things that we can't see are often things that are we don't allow in ourselves. So I will go into communities of people that I don't agree with and become an insider in order to understand what's going on. I go into lots of very troubling communities because I'm like, wow, I don't understand them. And I don't think anybody should because they're terrible people or something like that, right? Um or they're so weak. You know, any anything where where someone I just I refuse to understand them or I can't understand them, I'll go in and become a member of the community, almost in the way an anthropologist might, and then see what it is there that is that is what, what am I missing? But, I mean, I think when we can't understand someone, that is where practice happens.
0: So how might you take the perspective of someone, let's say, who's suffering, just a person who comes, who's suffering in a certain kind of way that's totally outside your experience? You've never, you've never suffered like that. You, mm-hmm. It's even hard to imagine that kind of suffering.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, with care, I would just listen just listen i mean some people don't want to talk about it and if the person doesn't want to talk about it then we'll just do something fun we'll laugh and play until they want to or we'll sit and have coffee or whatever it is that they would like to do but when someone's suffering i see them as a living shrine mm. you know some and 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 a shrine or an altar for me are places where things that have been made unsacred go to be made sacred again mm. So if someone's suffering, there's a lot of unsacredness that is trying to be made sacred in the the totality of that person. And so I become, um, I don't know if you've been around dogs who have been um, abused or horses who are skittish, but there's a way that you have to like sort of calm your body down Mm. and just make space and pretty much tell the dog or the horse, I don't need anything from you and it's all going to be okay. And then usually the dog will come right up to you, you know the horse will be like, "Oh, do you have a carrot you know they'll they'll totally read that you're you're not out to get them. The same thing with people who are for suffering a great deal is I just get into sort of a sacred space with them and slow down and just wait and know that that I'm in the presence of sacredness uh, that is trying to occur,
0: okay, The next <laughs> aspect of empathy
1: the next aspect is the big one where we would say. This is called concern for others. And this is the place where we would say that person's not empathic because they're not showing a concern for us. They might be able to take our perspective, but it looks like they don't care. So it might be a person who says, look, I know you want more money um, for this job you're doing, but I don't think that's realistic. You know, and, and, and the, the message you might get is not realistic. You, I don't like you. You know, you, what do you mean not realistic? I think it's realistic or I never would have asked for it. Do you know when someone doesn't show concern for our position, we would identify them as unempathic? Oops. All the rest of I, think, time. I think
0: I might be <laughs> unempathic. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> let's I, keep going. I, I, obviously, I need to focus on this aspect of empathy. Now, on the
1: other side of concern for others, people who show us concern for others can be um, wolves in sheep's clothing. Because they figured out that if I just show concern for you, I can pretty much get away with anything. So, concern for others is a very interesting place. So, for instance, con artists uh, have figured out how to yeah. take your perspective and show you a lot of concern so they can get you to do whatever the heck it is they want. Yeah. Right? Manipulative people who are good at it, um, abusers can show fake concern for others. And um, um, who's that? Uh, Bernie Madoff. Everyone thought he was the most lovely man ever because he made everybody feel witnessed and welcome and loved and wanted and it it was not true. So concern for others is something that you sort of have to teasel out. A lot of times people who don't show concern for others are fine with their empathy but they, they just need to tell you how it is. They just need to be honest and straight with you and I actually prefer those people. To the ones who show a lot of syrupy concern for others, right? I'm like, really? What are you trying to do? you trying to manipulate me? Yeah. Like people who use your name in the middle of a conversation. Yeah. Oh, or they, try, they touch you on the arm. I know exactly you what you arm. mean, Carla. Yes. And Tammy, what do you think about that? And I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. Yeah. You know? um, or people who touch you on the arm in the middle of the conversation. Yeah. You're like, I did not I didn't come toward you. What's going on? Yeah. Is they're trying to create a connection where one doesn't exist. So, so this is an area that's really interesting. And what is most interesting in the research is what they're saying is healthy shame, which is your capacity to monitor your own behavior and make sure that you're not hurting yourself or others. Healthy shame is crucial to concern for others. So if you have healthy shame, you will tend to show a healthy and appropriate concern for others because you're not trying to manipulate them. If you don't have healthy shame, if your shame is like twisted or, or unfocused or uh, immature, you won't have the shame that would say, I don't need to sell this person a car that they can't afford. I don't need to get this person to sign up for my, you know, multi-level marketing. Um, I don't need to use this person for whatever my ends are. If you don't have healthy shame, you will tend to be a manipulator, you will tend to not have functional or worthwhile concern for others. So it's a very interesting area.
0: Okay. So I get the pitfall, the yeah. manipulative con yeah. artist side, and I uh, I definitely get the side that says, I take your perspective, but sorry, Charlie. Yeah. What is this other thing that is concern for others where I actually really care? Yeah. How do I make that step to really caring if instead I'm just kind of like, well, you know, I get it, but it's kind of your problem?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get it, but it's kind of your problem. I don't know if that's not concern for others because there's a way that I can have so much concern for you that I will do things for you that you need to learn how to do yourself, if if you know what I'm saying. It would almost be pity. It will be There will be too much. Um, uh, uh, let me think of a situation. This is f- for people who are very empathic. Sometimes their concern for others goes on, you know, it goes on overdrive. Mm-hmm. And... They see that this person needs something to eat and that person needs to be left alone and that person needs a book and this person needs a blanket. And it's four hours later and they never ate lunch. It, if you hear what I'm saying, yeah. there's so much concern for others that that they lose sense of their own selves. Yeah. So for me, concern for others is this very um, – almost like a, like a Tai Chi, Aikido place where you really have to get into a balance with it. And it's something I have to do a lot, especially anybody who has a family, anybody who's in a relationship with people who are having difficulties. The concern for others can get, that's where empathic burnout can happen. It's where it's like, oh, I don't have anything left for you, sorry. Um, and so the, the, the key to that is concern for self
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask this now one more time because actually you're pointing out some really important things. Yeah, I definitely see in people who are hyper empathic that they're over concerned with others, and I definitely get this manipulative con artist archetype too. But I'm curious, what would you consider the healthy expression the of appropriate concern, concern for, others? for others? Yeah,
1: to follow their clear signals. Understand what would work for them, and within the within the within your capacity to give to provide that for them. And that's that's a lot of steps, yeah. right? For instance, um, when we talk about the final step, which is perceptive engagement, um, uh, sometimes the most empathic thing to do is nothing. A lot of people think, I'm going to do something empathic. So, you know, I'm going to put on my empathic um, diaphanous gown and I'm going to go do something (laughs) for you, you know, and, and, you know, rainbows and sparkles will come out of me and you will realize I'm an empath because of how, you know, how nice I am and how loving. But for instance, if someone's walking along the street and they trip and the first thing they do is whip their head to make sure nobody saw them, then concern for others would say, you do not see them right? You turn away immediately. And like, look at that bird. Wow. Until they have recovered. Because what they're signaling to you is that it's more, they're more concerned about the shame of being seen than that they maybe hurt their leg or or they stub their toe. For them, the most important thing is not to be seen. So your job as an empath is not to see them, right? And I think that's that's the point with concern for others is it's not um, there's not a recipe for it. It is completely dependent on the person and the situation and how you're feeling at the time. I mean, sometimes I'll go to the, the Safeway to go grocery shopping, and there's people around and they always seem to need something. For some reason, whenever I'm in a store, people think I work there no matter what I'm wearing, and they ask me where stuff is. And so usually I know, so I take them there. And so people are always wanting to interact. And so I check in with myself and see how do I feel when I go to Safeway. And if I don't feel like I have the energy to help people, then I look at concern for me and I don't make eye contact. Right? And some people don't know they have that option. They go to Safeway, everybody needs them, and they do what they can to help every single person right but there's not that there's not that awareness that concern for others can also a- coexist with concern for self and a- another piece i want to add about concern for others is sometimes what people ask for and what they think they want is not actually what would be the best thing for them so let's say somebody comes to me at work and says i am on a deadline and i can't do it can you please finish this project for me. And I've got a whole desk full of stuff. And I could do it. But I have to say, this is the fifth time that she's done this. And she's done it to other people. And this is a big issue in the workspace. So sure, I could take that. But my concern for her would be, we need to talk about this. We need to have an intervention. Let's, let's talk about what's really going on. Right? And that might feel really awful to her. That might feel like, wow, you weren't empathic with me at all. But I don't agree, because this this is causing a lot of trouble, and it's just going to get worse. So my concern for her would not look empathic, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't look nice.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to ask this just in a very direct way before we move on to the final aspect of empathy, which is, you know my partner, uh, Julie, and she is in our family considered the hyper empath, and I'm considered a kind of empathic person sort of and we have a saying you know Tammy you always put your oxygen mask on first that's the thing I put my own oxygen mask on first and then help other people whereas i think that she would put on other people's oxygen masks first in general so i think what's underneath my question about concern for others is am i just being self-centered here or is this a healthy way of navigating a balanced level of concern for other people.
1: I think you have to put on your oxygen mask first because if you have your oxygen mask on, you can help 40 people, right? If you put other people's oxygen masks on, maybe you can get four or five done, then you're going to pass out. Then they all have to come and put, you know, and then there's these 30 people back there who can't get helped because now everybody's um, rescuing you, right? Right you have to put your mask on first. And that is the hardest thing with empaths because empathy is about the other. To be really good at empathy, you really have to understand the needs and the the experience and the emotions of the other. But because we have such poor training about it, Uh, For instance, I was on, um, in my Facebook, in my internal Facebook feed, I have a lot of really intense activist people because I'm watching that behavior. And so I'll go with my friends and I'll get into fights in Facebook and I'll be like, yeah, whatever, not cruel, but I'll definitely stand up for people. And some people called me out and said I couldn't be an empath because I swear and because I wasn't being nice. And I said, well, if you think empathy means being nice, you don't understand empathy. You don't understand it. And if that's what you're expecting from people, you don't want empathy. You want a doormat. You know, because for me, what empathy means is I can feel any emotion at any level of intensity, and I will not abandon you. That's what it is. And that's not nice. It's love. It's empathy. It's concern. But... What it means is I have to have like this huge emotional vocabulary so that whatever you're feeling, we can share it and you'll know that you're not going to tear me up. That It's going to be okay. And a lot of people who say that they're empathic, if I say I'm feeling, let's say a really hard emotion, I'm feeling suicidal, the empathic person would fall apart because she doesn't know how to fix it. How do I fix it? How do I do that? It's like, No. So there's a lot of people who, who think of themselves as empathic that I wouldn't share intense things with because I know that they would fall apart, if you hear what I'm saying.
0: I do. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about this final aspect of empathy that you referred to, perceptive engagement.
1: In the research, because researchers have to see actions so they can write it down and say that it happened, it's called targeted helping or consolation and as i said so so you would have to do something that showed that that you were helping the person with something that they had requested or that you were consoling the person who was troubled and the reason i changed it to perceptive engagement is because as i was talking about the person who trips in the street the the, the, the pseudo empathic person would make a big show of going over and saying, are you all right? Are you okay? And increase the shame of the person who showed so clearly that <laughs> they do not want to be seen at that moment. Do you, do, do you hear the difference that yeah, it's I do. not always action? So perceptive engagement means that you're engaging in a way that shows that you really are focused on what the person wants and needs.
0: Now, we began this conversation about the six aspects of empathy by saying that for somebody who wants to develop more empathy, it's important for them to know which of these six aspects they might want to work on. So talk to me a little bit about that, how understanding these six aspects helps me know where do I go if I want to increase my ability to be an empathic person?
1: hmm With emotion contagion, uh, if you do it a lot already, then you're going to want to make sure your empathic accuracy and your emotion regulation are really quite good uh, because you're taking in so much. You need lots of skills. If you don't pick up emotion from others, then fiction, especially drama and movies, so that you can sort of get your, your organism understanding what it is when emotions move back and forth. Looking at art, music, anything where... It's a controlled space where you can uptake emotions in a way that feels safe and workable. Um, Perspective-taking. Fiction, again. Um, Concern for others. That one is a difficult one because for so many people, concern for others has, as I said, you know, there were like nine things in concern for others. And that's something to look at um, in terms of... um, therapy sometimes if you just cannot muster concern for others. But also a lot of our talk, especially for women about concern for others, is give up your life. And so a lot of women have a very conflicted relationship with that area. Um, For the rest of them, you know, the the skills in the book uh, I talk about specifically, if you have trouble here, let's look at this. You know, if you have trouble there, let's look at this. And using Richard Davidson's work as well. Talking about the way that your brain can change, that each of these things, even though you feel like, okay, this is just who I am and this is how it is and I'm stuck, is actually not true. You can definitely make changes to each of these areas.
0: Now, Carla, there's a lot more I want to talk to you about because we've actually only dug into the first uh, one-eighth <laughs> of the book, The Art of Empathy, something like that. which is only the first couple chapters of the book where you lay out – The model of empathy that you're working with. So let's have a part two to our conversation. Carla McLaren is the author of a new book called The Art of Empathy, A Complete Guide to Life's Most Essential Skill. She's also written a book published by Sounds True on the language of emotions, what your feelings are trying to tell you, and offers an online course on emotional flow, becoming fluent in the language of emotions. This is part one of our conversation on the art of empathy. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.